Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. As 18-year-old Chris Drellos pulled into the garage of the auto body shop, he turned to look at 16-year-old Amy Fisher sitting in the passenger seat beside him. But before he could say anything to her, she was already sliding out the door to greet the mechanic. For some reason, she seemed to be in a hurry. Chris followed her out and explained to the mechanic the work he wanted done on his car. He expected Amy to stick around while the repairman got started, but instead, she disappeared into a back office. Chris watched as she followed an older man upstairs. Chris spent the next 45 minutes pacing around the garage waiting for Amy to return. He wasn't exactly jealous. He liked having fun with Amy. She was the only girl he knew, willing to have no strings attached sex without expecting it to turn into a serious relationship. He didn't mind if she spent time with other guys. Still, the whole situation struck him as odd. This guy had to be 20 years older than Amy, at least. That was his competition? When Amy finally came back downstairs, Chris asked her what she had been doing. She said coyly, she was doing her boyfriend, Joey Buttafuoco. Incredulous, Chris pointed out the pictures of the man's wife and family that covered the walls of the garage. Didn't it bother Amy to sleep with a married man in his 30s? But that's not what bothered Amy Fisher at all. To Chris's shock, her expression darkened at the mention of Joey's wife. She only replied, he's madly in love with me. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of three episodes on Joey Buttafuoco and Amy Fisher. This week, we'll meet Joey, how he married his high school sweetheart, Mary Jo Connery, and how their marriage got off to a rocky start. However, Joey seemed to clean up his act and become the ideal husband until he had an affair with a 16-year-old girl 
named Amy Fisher. In our next two episodes, we'll explore how the love triangle exploded into violence and how tabloids latched onto the story until it became a tawdry national scandal. Growing up in the Long Island community of Massapequa, Joey Buttafuoco had a reputation for being the fun guy. Friendly, outgoing, and always armed with a joke. In 1971, 15-year-old Joey sat next to 16-year-old Mary Jo Connery in their sophomore year summer school class. Mary Jo didn't take much notice of Joey at first. They were classmates, friendly enough to exchange hellos in the hall, nothing more. But the more Mary Jo interacted with Joey, the more she started to like him. She later said he was a rascal, but lovable. Even the teacher couldn't stay mad at him for long. Her interest continued thanks to her physical attraction. Joey was tall and broad-shouldered. Mary Jo thought he was handsome. By junior year, they were going out. Mary Jo enjoyed dating the fun guy, and as they got to know each other, she found she also liked seeing another side of him. To everyone else, he was the class clown, but with her, he was sensitive. After a few months together, Joey told her about how his mother, Louise, had died of cancer when he was younger. He was in tears as he described how difficult the loss had been for him. This early loss may have shaped Joey's emotional outlook for the rest of his life. Before I continue with Joey's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Clinical psychologist Linda Doudney found that one in five children who lose a parent at a young age will go on to develop a psychiatric disorder with the highest rates of difficulties reported in young boys. Research suggests that without intervention, such as counseling and extra support, a child who loses a parent often faces long-term consequences. A study led by Beverly Lim Hu of the Danish Cancer Society Research Center found that individuals who lost a parent before the age of 18 have a higher risk of marital separation later in life. But naturally, 16-year-old Mary Jo wasn't thinking about the long-term effects of Joey's trauma on their relationship. She was touched by his vulnerability. As she listened to his heartfelt account of his pain, she fell deeply in love with Joey. For their first few years together, Mary Jo and Joey were happy. Their relationship seemed almost effortless. They loved each other. They adored each other's families. They both came from stable, middle-class Catholic upbringings. They both seemed to want the same future. On September 4, 1977, 22-year-old Mary Jo and 21-year-old Joey got married. Mary Jo later recalled, there were no qualms or second thoughts. I had the calm, happy sense of beginning my adult life and doing the right thing. And it seemed like Joey and Mary Jo didn't have any trouble adjusting to married life either. Joey worked at his father's car shop, Complete Auto Body, while Mary Jo worked in the credit department of a local bank. 
they made enough money to afford a small home of their own in the nearby hamlet of Baldwin, New York, close to both of their jobs and families. Joey still had the fun-loving personality that had endeared him to Mary Jo in their teenage years. He enjoyed an active nightlife of parties, clubs, and music. Mary Jo liked these things too, but Joey took it a little further than she did. In the late 1970s, cocaine became the drug of choice in discos across the United States. Joey was quick to partake. Mary Jo was willing to experiment with him at first, but in 1979, two years into their marriage, she became pregnant. Their partying lifestyle suddenly became a lot less appealing, and certain aspects of Joey's personality, which had once excited her, now seemed like red flags. The warnings grew more severe on Christmas Eve of 1979, just a few weeks before Mary Jo's due date. That night, the couple spent the evening having dinner with Joey's parents. As they were driving home, a Long Island Railroad security car attempted to pull them over. Instead of stopping, Joey fled the scene, speeding back home at 80 miles per hour, leading to a police chase. The police pursued Joey all the way back to his house. To avoid trouble, he lied and told them that they were rushing to get home because Mary Jo was having contractions. Joey didn't get a ticket, but the nine months pregnant Mary Jo was furious that Joey had behaved so recklessly with her and their unborn child in the car. A few weeks later, in January of 1980, 24-year-old Mary Jo gave birth to a son, Paul, and left her job at the bank to become a stay-at-home mom. She felt secure about the family finances. That same month, Joey and his brother Bobby bought into their father's successful auto body shop. It should have been a happy time, but Mary Jo couldn't enjoy it. She was worried about Joey's more and more frequent cocaine use. She didn't like that he continued to stay out late, partying and socializing while she was at home taking care of their new baby. When he returned after long hours or even days away from home, she often suspected he was lying to her about where he had been. Sometimes when she was fed up with his behavior, Mary Jo threatened to leave Joey, but each time she brought up divorce, he immediately became contrite. He wrote her love notes, sent her flowers, bought her jewelry. Eventually, she always forgave him. In March of 1983, their family grew again. Mary Jo gave birth to a girl named Jessica, but Mary Jo felt strained by the pressures of raising two young children with an addict for a partner, and it affected her mental health. Soon after Jessica was born, Mary Jo began to suffer from anxiety and debilitating panic attacks. She saw a doctor who prescribed medication and behavioral therapy to alleviate her symptoms but this treatment did nothing to address the true problems in her marriage. By 1986, 31-year-old Mary Jo needed a change. She hoped to move to a new, larger house in Massapequa on Long Island. The move would give them more space, and it would also take Joey away from the bad influences in Baldwin. Plus, 
they would be closer to Joey and Mary Jo's parents. Mary Jo hoped they would provide the young family with a stronger support network. She found a house by the beach on the edge of South Oyster Bay and made an offer. When she began taking steps to move the family to Massapequa, Joey told Mary Jo he could take care of selling their house in Baldwin. In fact, he had already found a buyer. Mary Jo didn't question him. Joey was a charismatic, well-liked guy who was always out meeting new people. It wasn't an outlandish idea that he'd convince someone to buy the house. But on the day the Butterfugos were scheduled to close on their new home, Joey admitted to her that there was never a buyer. He owed so much money to his drug dealer that he signed over the deed to their house as payment. Mary Jo was stunned and furious. Mary Jo's stomach lurched as she grappled with her husband's confession. Her jaw clenched. She couldn't open her mouth without screaming. Part of her wanted to let rage take over. She wanted to lose control, but she couldn't. She had to be the adult. She had to be responsible. She had to stay calm enough to clean up the wreckage left behind by Joey's stupid and irresponsible behavior. She watched him walk across the room. He sagged against the wall. Tears came to his eyes. Almost against her will, Mary Jo softened. He looked so defeated. As furious as she was, she still wanted to take care of him. He was like one of the kids. He needed her but she knew they couldn't continue on this path for much longer. If Joey kept living like this, he would eventually self-destruct and take her and the kids down with him. The Butterfugos purchased their new house in Massapequa as planned, but to do so, they had to borrow $50,000 from Joey's father. In exchange, Joey gave up his ownership in the auto body shop he would continue to work there, but only as an employee. Mary Jo also gave Joey an ultimatum, go to rehab or their marriage was over. Joey agreed and successfully completed a three-week 12-step program. When he returned home, he seemed to have conquered his addictions. Mary Jo was eager to forgive him and start fresh. Rehab had cured the main source of their marital stress. Joey still occasionally pushed things too far and searched for a good time. In November of 1990, he took out a loan to purchase a 31-foot racing boat that was out of their budget. But compared to the cocaine use, Mary Jo felt that this was a tame extravagance, so she let it slide. At least the whole family could enjoy a summer of boat rides on the ocean. But around the same time, 35-year-old Joey found another diversion, one that he carefully hid from his wife. That winter, he met a 16-year-old girl named Amy Fisher. It was a relationship that would change his family's lives forever. When we return, we'll see how troubled teen Amy Fisher fell for the charms of Joey Buttafuoco. Now, 
back to the story. In late 1990, 35-year-old Joey Buttafuoco seemed settled into a stable routine with his wife, 34-year-old Mary Jo, and two children, 10-year-old Paul and 7-year-old Jessica. Joey had struggled with cocaine addiction for years, but he stopped using after completing rehab in the late 1980s. As he worked to rebuild his life, Joey had the support of friends, family, and neighbors. Everyone seemed to root for him. He was an affable man, easy to like. Many people who met Joey found him charming, but it was these same charms that helped Joey win the affections of a 16-year-old girl named Amy Fisher. To outsiders, Amy had a perfect upper-middle-class privileged life. Her parents owned a successful upholstery shop in Freeport, New York. Amy was an only child, and her mother and father could afford to spoil her. One neighbor commented, her parents didn't set down a lot of rules. But indulgent parents and material comforts couldn't insulate Amy from tragedy. Amy reported that between the ages of three and six years old, she was molested by a close relative. She also said at the age of 12, she was sexually assaulted by a man who had been hired to retile their bathroom. Hurt and confused, she protected herself by characterizing the encounter as consensual. Not even a teenager, she began to cultivate an image of herself as a precocious, sexual-free spirit. These instances likely had a profound effect on Amy's mental and physical health. Clinical psychologist Lukasz M. Kanapka pointed to a breadth of research showing that childhood sexual abuse significantly changes its victim's brain and alters its function, cognition, and emotion. According to psychologist Suzanne Babel, promiscuity and poor self-esteem are unfortunately common reactions to early sexual abuse. In August of 1990, Amy's parents bought her a new white Dodge Daytona for her 16th birthday. Shortly before Christmas, her father brought it to a complete auto body for repairs. Amy accompanied her father to the shop. There, she met Joey Buttafuoco for the first time. Nothing came of this initial encounter, but it wasn't their last meeting. Over the next few months, Amy returned to the shop several times whenever she needed to fix minor damages or when she wanted alterations made. She requested pink pinstripes to be painted along the car's exterior, and she asked for her name painted on the driver's side door. Joey Buttafuoco was happy to have her repeat business and was friendly with Amy. It wasn't long before Amy found any excuse to hang around his shop. She liked Joey. He provided a sympathetic ear to her as she complained about her parents. She didn't get along with her father. She said he had a violent temper and she was often unhappy at home. Joey treated Amy to slices of pizza and Diet Cokes while she vented. He was the friend she felt she needed. Mary Jo Buttafuoco, had she known about the relationship, might not have been surprised to know that Joey was playing buddy to a teenager. She often accused him of behaving like a big overgrown kid. But at that point, she was busy with home improvement projects and activities at her young children's school. 
she didn't notice that Joey's attention was divided. Meanwhile, Amy Fisher loved getting closer to Joey, especially as her troubles at home increased. In February of 1991, Amy and her parents started fighting more than usual. Their arguments seemed like typical disagreements between a teenager and her parents. They butted heads over her missing curfew, the messiness of her room, or her grades at school. But the fights often ended in Amy screaming at the top of her lungs and running out of the house in a huff. One night, an argument got heated enough that Amy left home and drove to her aunt's house without telling her parents where she was going. Her father, fearing she had run away, filed a missing persons report. In the report, he called his daughter totally uncontrollable. Once her parents found out she was safe, Amy stayed with her grandmother for a few weeks while tensions cooled. When she returned home, life seemed to go back to normal, but there were warning signs that Amy was more troubled than her parents knew. That spring, 16-year-old Amy started dating an 18-year-old former classmate named Christopher Drellos. It wasn't a formal relationship. They sometimes just met for a movie or a meal and then had sex. Chris made it clear that he didn't want a monogamous relationship and Amy didn't press for one. Over time, Chris started to guess that Amy had a crush on someone else. Chris was right. Amy was still taking every opportunity she could to see Joey Buttafuoco at his auto shop. On July 2nd, 1991, she dropped her car off for some repairs. She said that Joey then offered to give her a ride home. Other workers at the shop said that the trip should have taken about 10 minutes, but Joey was gone for three hours. When they got to Amy's house, it was empty. That afternoon, Amy and Joey had sex for the first time in her bedroom. They met again later that night at a motel in Freeport for another tryst. After that, they saw each other almost every day at Amy's house, in motels, on Joey's boat, or in an apartment above the auto shop. When Amy's friend Chris found out about Joey, Amy explained to him that they were in love she really believed they were. Joey wasn't like the boy she knew in high school. He took her on real dates to expensive restaurants, sent her flowers, and gave her jewelry. Amy's peers didn't understand why the older man appealed to her, but Joey's age didn't bother her. She liked his experience, telling friends that they were having great sex. She liked that Joey made her feel more mature, not just because he was older, but because he introduced her to a thrilling new adult world. In early August, about a month after Amy and Joey started their affair, Amy told Joey that she needed money. Over the summer, she had gotten a sales clerk job at the Sunrise Mall in Massapequa. However, she was fired after just a few weeks because she often came in late or called in sick. She asked Joey how she might find another source of income. He allegedly suggested that she become a sex worker. He introduced her to ABBA Escort Service, 
a business that employed about two dozen women who provided sex work at a rate of between $85 and $300 per hour. The service operated out of Baldwin, the hamlet where Joey and Mary Jo Buttafuoco had spent their early married years. Some sources claim that Joey had established a connection with the service years earlier, supplying the sex workers and their clients with drugs in the mid-1980s. Another source even claimed that Joey had worked for the escort service as a driver. Joey denied all of these accusations, including that he suggested sex work to Amy, but the timing suggests that he may have had some kind of influence. That August, Amy managed to get a fake ID stating she was 21 years old and was quickly hired by ABBA. She acquired a regular clientele of about 10 men. She liked the attention she got from this work, but it came with negative consequences. The same month she began working at ABBA, Amy's mother brought her to see a gynecologist. Amy was informed that she had contracted chlamydia. She told her parents she had gotten it from Joey Buttafuoco. Amy's father was furious. He called the local district attorney's office for advice on pressing charges for statutory rape. They told him he could file a complaint, but ultimately, he declined to do so. He told the DA's office that he was afraid his daughter might run away again if he went ahead with the case. Amy's parents confronted Joey, but he denied everything. He told them that he was happily married with two children, he had no interest in going anywhere near a 16-year-old girl. When Amy's parents pressed her again, she protected Joey. She told them she had lied about their affair and that she must have gotten the STI from somebody else. Amy's parents were used to her lying to them by now. They hastily apologized to Joey and let their suspicions drop. But despite Amy's denials, she was still very much sleeping with Joey and she didn't feel that her work interfered in their relationship. That was just sex. She and Joey were in love. It did bother her, however, that Joey was married, and he apparently enjoyed stoking her jealousy, often speaking highly of Mary Jo in front of Amy, telling her that he was lucky to have such a beautiful wife. Amy had started nurturing hopes that she and Joey might be married someday, but she knew that could never happen as long as he was still with Mary Jo. Late in the summer of 1991, still only weeks into her affair with Joey, Amy went to her friend and casual sex partner, Chris Drellos, and asked him if he knew where she could get a gun. According to Chris, Amy told him outright, she wanted to get rid of Mary Jo Buttafuoco. When Amy got to Chris's apartment, he seemed excited to see her. They always had a good time together, not quite like with Joey, but still nice. She knew she could trust Chris. So as soon as she got inside, she asked him about the gun. After explaining what she wanted, Amy studied Chris's face, waiting for him to look shocked, but he only looked confused. He probably didn't think she was tough enough to shoot a gun. Amy couldn't wait to prove him wrong. 
Soon, she'd show him and everyone else that she wasn't afraid. She was certain that she wouldn't be caught. She was careful. And even if the police did catch her, she would tell them that she was a kid. Amy didn't think they would send a teenage girl to prison. And if they tried, Joey would find a way to protect her. He loved her too much to let anything bad happen to her. And soon, nothing would stop them from being together. Amy understood that shooting someone was wrong, but somehow she came to think about the murder in the same way she thought about her sex work. Doing something illegal seemed cool, glamorous, and adult. Planning the murder of her lover's wife made her feel like a worldly femme fatale. And Amy felt certain that Joey would be better off if she killed Mary Jo. She thought she would be doing him a favor. When we return, Amy Fisher's obsession with Mary Jo Buttafuoco intensifies. Now, back to the story. In the late summer of 1991, 17-year-old Amy Fisher began an illicit affair with 35-year-old Joey Buttafuoco. Joey's wife, Mary Jo, had no idea he was cheating on her. And she certainly didn't know that Amy had started telling her friends that she wished Mary Jo were dead. After Amy approached her friend Chris Drellos about acquiring a gun, he brushed her off and hoped that was the end of it. But Amy kept pushing. She had loaned him some money the previous spring and she reminded him that he owed her. If he found her a gun, they would be even. To get Amy off his back, Chris introduced her to his neighbor, 21-year-old Stephen Sleeman. Stephen owned a 22 caliber rifle, which he used for target practice. Chris didn't tell Stephen what Amy wanted. He merely said, go along with her. She'll give you all the sex you want. Just days after Chris introduced them, Amy asked Stephen outright if he would shoot Mary Jo Buttafuoco for her. She promised him money and sex in exchange for the hit. Stephen thought Amy must be pulling some elaborate prank. He couldn't believe that the suburban teen was really interested in murder, but he went along with it, hoping to get the money and sex Amy promised him. He didn't think there was any way the murder would ever actually happen. For the next two months, however, he diligently followed Mary Jo Buttafuoco around and updated Amy on the woman's schedule. Happy with his efforts, Amy paid him $600 and performed oral sex on him. Sometimes when they were together, Amy talked to him about her work with the escort service or boasted about her past relationships. But mostly, she talked about getting rid of Mary Jo and how it would improve her chances with Joey. She told Stephen, Joey loves his wife and he could never hurt her but he could get used to the idea of her not being around. In November of 1991, 17-year-old Amy was finally ready to take action. She filled Stephen in on her plan. She intended to knock on the Buttafuoco's door, pretending to sell candy for charity. Stephen would hide around the side of the house. Once Mary Jo answered the door, 
he could leap out and shoot her. Stephen drove Amy to the Buttafuoco's house, but even as Amy repeated her plan, he was sure she must be joking. But when they got there, Amy pushed him over to his hiding place beside the house. As he waited there, Amy walked up to the front door confidently and rang the bell. When Mary Jo answered the door, she faced her husband's mistress for the first time, although she had no idea who Amy was. Armed with a box of store-bought candy, Amy gave her speech about charity. Mary Jo tried to send Amy away, saying they already had too much leftover candy from Halloween, but Amy persuaded her it was for a good cause. Mary Jo relented, and went back inside to get her purse. Amy signaled to Stephen, waiting for him to step forward with the gun, but he froze. When Mary Jo went back inside the house, Stephen fled back to his car. She never even noticed him. Amy was furious. After selling Mary Jo the candy, she returned to the car and berated Stephen for failing to follow through on the murder. Stephen shakily admitted that the gun wasn't even loaded. Amy fumed. Her first plan had failed to destroy Joey's marriage. If she wanted him to herself, she would have to come up with something else. About a month later, Amy gave Joey an ultimatum. He had to choose between her and marry Joe. If he didn't get a divorce, Amy threatened to stop seeing him. But her threat didn't work out the way she'd hoped. Joey told her that it was time to end their affair anyway. With the holidays coming, he needed to spend more time with his family. Perhaps to give Amy a distraction, Joey introduced her to Paul Makeley, a 29-year-old personal trainer. Paul owned the gym where Joey used to work out. He suggested that Amy start working out there too. After joining the gym, Amy quickly latched onto Paul. He became one of her closest confidants. Amy bitterly complained to Paul about how Joey had treated her. He listened to her, amused, and often teased her about Joey. He could tell that she was trying to act mature beyond her years, and he tried to remind her that she was just a teenager. She had her whole future ahead of her, she didn't need to pin all her hopes on a married 36-year-old. But despite Paul's advice, Amy couldn't move past Joey. After months of hearing his declarations of love for her, Amy felt certain he would leave his wife. Was her whole relationship with Joey a sham or did Joey really want to be with her and only stayed with his wife out of a sense of duty? Mary Jo, meanwhile, had no reason to suspect anything was wrong at all. At the end of 1991, she was enjoying some of the happiest times of her life. She loved living in Oyster Bay, close to friends and family. Her children, 11-year-old Paul and eight-year-old Jessica were thriving. As far as she knew, her marriage was at a high point. Mary Jo stood by the window of the beach club looking out at the water. Everyone at the party was celebrating, preparing to ring in the new year. Soon, she would return to the crowd to join them. 
but she wanted to take a minute to reflect while watching the waves outside. The calm, happy feeling that washed over her almost felt too good to be true. Five years ago, she never would have guessed she'd be here. In the last few months, something had shifted between her and Joey for the better. Joey was so attentive, thoughtful, and affectionate. It was like they were newlyweds again. Mary Jo turned and searched the crowd until she spotted her husband. He was in his element, surrounded by friends, probably cracking a joke. Mary Jo couldn't hear what he was saying, but she couldn't help but smile. She felt so light. Life felt so easy. It was blissful. Soon the clock struck midnight and she and Joey found each other so they could share a champagne toast and a kiss. As they celebrated, Joey assured her that 1992 would be their best year yet. Mary Jo felt certain he was right. In early 1992, the Butafuco's marriage showed no signs of being strained. Friends said they hardly ever seemed to argue. They were frequently seen holding hands as they strolled through the neighborhood. They looked like a couple madly in love. Meanwhile, Amy seemed to accept that Joey wasn't going to leave his wife. Instead, she had developed a crush on her gym trainer, Paul, and she told him so. The 29-year-old initially told her that he wanted to take things slow and build a friendship, but they still began sleeping together not long after Amy joined the gym. In March, Paul invited Amy to come with him for a weekend at his cottage in Vermont. Amy was thrilled. She told Paul that if he asked, she would happily move there with him permanently. Although Amy said she wanted a serious relationship, Paul noticed that she still kept in touch with Joey. Amy said they were just friends now. He was still her mechanic. But Paul could tell that things were more complicated than she let on. When Joey noticed how close Amy and Paul were becoming, he didn't like it. Amy told Paul, Joe is really jealous of you. It bothers him a lot that I hang out with you. Sometime in the early spring of 1992, Joey Buttafuoco and Amy Fisher resumed their sexual relationship. Amy still felt betrayed by Joey. She told Paul that she felt stupid to have ever believed Joey's lies but she couldn't seem to resist him either. She confessed to Paul that she thought she was in love with both of them. Paul sensed Amy's ambivalence and he pushed her to make a decision. He told her, you've probably had a weird past. If you're looking to drop all that and move on, maybe there'll be something for us. As Amy tried to juggle her feelings for both Paul and Joey, she felt more confused than ever. Her confusion turned to anger as she realized that, regardless of how Joey felt, nothing between them had changed. He was still married to Mary Jo. He showed no signs of wanting to make a commitment to Amy. And now, he was trying to obstruct her relationship with Paul. As Amy struggled with her uncertainty, she recalled her plan from the previous fall. She remembered how she wanted to kill Mary Jo Buttafuoco. At the time, she was desperate to win Joey's affection 
and filled with hope about their future together. Now, it seemed that there was nothing she could do to make Joey love her, but she could still make him feel as hurt as she did. For the second time since the start of her affair with Joey Buttafuoco, Amy Fisher began to think about how she could get her hands on a gun. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Amy Fisher and the Buttafuoco story. We'll discuss how a Long Island crime became a national scandal and the extensive legal maneuvering that followed. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>